And one thing that's always interested me about presidential politics is the fact that every president seems to be really interested in what kind of a legacy they're going to leave. You ever, you ever hear them talk about that? They, they have their museums built and what's going to be put in there and what kind of a legacy am I going to have? Well, if I pass this legislation, if I don't pass this legislation, you know, what are people going to think of me afterwards? You know, that, that whole idea. They, they want to be remembered after their term in office is over as having done something significant. That's, if we give them the benefit of the doubt, that's what they want. And, uh, well, the truth of the matter is I think a lot of people want that. I think a lot of people want their life to have meant something more significant than, well, than just being average or just having existed and breathed in and out for about 70 years or something like that. I mean, don't you want your life to matter for something? I mean, don't you want to leave a mark on this world that's going to last beyond your personal existence here? I mean, don't you want to make a difference in this world that actually really matters to live for something that's bigger than yourself and just your stuff? I mean, you don't want to just live your life gathering toys that you leave behind. You want to make a mark in the life of people you love and maybe even a greater impact in society and on the world in general. I mean, I think that's a fairly reasonable way to consider how you view your life. Well, in 1 Corinthians 15, we have, as we've seen, the single greatest chapter in all the Bible on the subject of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and In this chapter, as we've seen already, the resurrection is proven to be true, to have been a provenly true single historical fact. But that historical fact is much more than just that, the fact that we learn something from history. That historical fact is designed to have an impact on our lives. And that's the thing that Paul's trying to get across specifically in this part of the chapter where we're at now. You see, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and then by extension, the resurrection that's promised to us, is actually more than just our eternal security. And that's a great thing. But it's more than just our eternal security after death. It's actually practical for us today. In fact, it's similar to what we would be familiar with in John chapter 10 and verse number 10, where Jesus says, The thief cometh not, but for to steal, to kill, and destroy. I am come that they might have life, And they might have it more abundantly. And so we talk about having the abundant life in Jesus Christ. And one aspect of the abundant life is that it's abundantly long. It lasts forever. That's eternal life. But it's also abundant in that it's a life overflowing of joy because Christ is in it. And so there's a dual application. Well, that's the kind of a thing we're going to see as we look at this issue of the resurrection today. And the verses that we're going to look at from 29 to 34, I'm titling this message, The Impact of the resurrection on our lives as believers in Jesus Christ. And can I just share with you, before we get into this, as we pray and are about to get into it, if your life has not been impacted at this level that we'll see by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, well then, you may have a hard time making an impact on others as well. So this is an important passage of Scripture. If you'll follow along, I'm going to start in verse 29. We're going to down to verse 34, we're going to pray, and then we'll jump into it. Listen as we read together. Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead, if the dead rise not at all? Why are they then baptized for the dead? And why stand we in jeopardy every hour? I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantageth it me? 
If the dead rise not, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Awake to righteousness and sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. So let's pray and ask God to teach us what he has for us today. Heavenly Father, as we come before this section of Scripture, we desperately need your teaching, your guidance, your instruction from your Holy Spirit, the author of Scripture. And I pray specifically that today, maybe more than even the other studies we've done in this chapter, that we would not allow ourselves to just merely be hearers of the word, but that we would be doers of it as well. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would make an impact on us so that we can make an impact on the world. And I know that for many, you've made a huge impact in our lives, but maybe there's more. And for others, maybe they're still just looking into this thing. And well, today needs to be the day. Your word can answer all of our needs. And I pray that we'll come to it specifically with that attitude. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the first thing we're going to look at as we jump into this is what I'm calling the cost. The cost of the impact. Now, everybody wants to have the power of a resurrected life. There's no question about it. But not everybody wants to pay the price necessary in order to have it. Because the sad reality is... (laughs) You can't possibly have a resurrection unless you first have what? A death. Because to be resurrected means you have to have died first. And so in Philippians chapter 3 and verse number 10, Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And everybody would say, amen, I want that too. And the fellowship of his sufferings. Now, wait a minute. Being made conformable unto his death. You see, the only way you're going to get the power of the resurrection is if you are also, might even add previously, conformed unto his death. And his death was a death of terrible suffering. It was a death on a cross. And so the cost impact of the resurrection in your life is death. That's what it is. It's death. And this subject is addressed in various ways in the next four verses. The first way is... Death revealed. Death revealed. Verse number 29. Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead, if the dead rise not at all? Why are they then baptized for the dead? What? That is one weird verse. Right? I mean, okay, here we go, right? I mean, let me just say this. For those of you that may be new, I don't know, or or maybe those of you that are here regularly, that... The, what we do at this church is what we call expository preaching. We take books of the Bible and we go verse by verse all the way through. And, well, what that requires is, is that we can't skip verse 29. That's what it requires. It means that when we get to it, well, we got we to gotta deal with it. We can't do like the majority of commentators that you might read out there. And they'll explain all kind of wonderful things right up to verse 28 and pick it right up in verse 30. Uh, they're not going to be any good for you. I mean, you've got to deal with the Scripture as it comes, and, well, here it comes, so we're going to deal with it. You ready? Here we go. This, without question, right, is a verse of Scripture that, well, it's hard to understand at first. I mean, it's often mistaught. And the most obvious, blatant, false teaching associated with this verse of Scripture comes to us via the Mormons. You might not be surprised. Maybe you know that. And and the way the Mormons would read verse 29, I'm going to paraphrase in my own words so that you can understand the way the Mormons would read verse 29. 
they would read, else what shall they do which get baptized in the place of a fellow who dies? That's the way that they would read it. But the term the dead in verse number 29 has nothing to do with somebody who just died. It never has any time in the entire chapter. It's ridiculous to assign it here. But you see, the Mormon church, as a basis, as a result of that false understanding, has developed a doctrine, for example, and I'm only giving you this for instruction so you can understand and so you don't get confused. The Mormon doctrine concerning salvation is, is that water baptism performed in a Mormon temple is required for salvation. So that if you, as a faithful Mormon, have a loved one who dies, who was never baptized in the Mormon temple, well, they're kind of in trouble, right? I mean, they need to have been baptized. And so they weren't. And so the faithful Mormon goes to the temple and gets baptized for them because they didn't get a chance to get around to doing it or whatever. So they go and they literally get baptized for the dead. And that's the way they read that. And they say, well, that's exactly what we do. That's exactly what it says. And so there you have it. Okay, well, there's a lot of problems with that. It, it might even remind some of you of the also false doctrine that is propagated by the Roman Catholics who have this doctrine of purgatory. Somebody dies and they don't go to heaven or to hell. They go to some intermediary holding place and conveniently the church has set it up such that if you go and give enough money to the church, well, maybe you can get them out of purgatory. And that works really good for them. Uh, it's too bad, it's just not biblical. And so, you know, that's, that's a mess. But the idea is the same. The idea that somebody alive today can do something for somebody who's already dead. Being baptized for the dead. But that can't mean that. It can't mean that. Why? Because we're Baptists? No, because it violates the rules of Bible study. That's why. Some of you need to sign up for that 9 a.m. class over the summer. There are several rules associated with understanding how to understand the Scriptures, right? And one of them is that you never base a doctrine solely on one and one alone verse of Scripture. This is the only verse of Scripture in the entire Bible that makes such a statement about being baptized for the, Whatever that means, we'll get to what it means. Whatever it means, you can't base a doctrine on one and one only verse of Scripture. God always confirms things in the mouth of two, of two or three witnesses. There's another rule of Bible study that you never base a doctrine on a question. And in the next six verses, in these six verses, we have four questions. So you don't want to base a doctrine. He's just asking questions. He's asking, well, what if, what about that, what about that? Well, that's, he's not declaring anything. He's asking a question. You can't base a doctrine on a question. And the other thing you need to know about the rules of Bible study, there's a lot of wonderful rules. Again, you need to go to that class, is this. Never take an obscure passage and use it to violate the clear teaching of many other passages. So you have two and three and four and ten and twenty witnesses that prove and establish some doctrine. And then you have one outlier verse like this one. You can't take the exception. We say the exception proves the rule. The exception in society these days, now people make it to overthrow the rule. Well, you can't do that in true Bible hermeneutics. And the Bible is very clear about many things. One, water baptism doesn't save. Two, death is the end. And you can't decide for somebody else. Those are clear Bible teachings. So you can't, whatever you, can't, whatever you do, what you can't do is take this one verse and just throw out all that other stuff that you understand. Whatever it is you're going to understand, you have to understand it in the context of chapter 15. In the context of chapter 15 is the importance of the resurrection 
of Jesus Christ. Let me offer to you what I believe is the simple, clear, contextual understanding. And we're going to do that by starting out by defining the terms in this verse. It says, else what shall they do? Who are they? They are Christian believers. They're you and me. Baptized, in this case, literally is baptism in water. There are other baptisms in the Bible. This is a water baptism. The word for is a word that's debated among theologians. I mean, you almost have to go to seminary to debate stuff like this. The word for simply means because of. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 3, it says, Christ died for our sins. Did he die in order that we might sin? Of course not. Christ died because of our sins. Because we have sin, well, he had to die. Okay? And then we have the term the dead. But the term the dead appears two different times. Now, I'm going to explain this, and we're going to get to the end, and we're going to make it clear by the time we're done, I hope. But the dead, the first time it appears, the first time it appears, else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead? The first time the dead appears, I believe, refers to spiritually dead people, meaning unsaved, people who are unsaved. However, the second time the dead appears, I think it applies to physically dead people. In other words, everybody who has ever died from Adam to Christ. Now, hang on. If this understanding and definition of terms is to be accurate, if it's right, then let me paraphrase the verse, substituting in these definitions in a way that you can understand what I think God is trying to communicate to us, okay? Here's Jeff's paraphrase. Else what shall the Christians do who are baptized in water as a testimony for the unsaved? If those who died previously rise not. Why then are they baptized as a testimony for the unsaved? See where that goes? In other words, let's not overcomplicate things. Let's not try and create things that aren't there. Let's not stray far from the original context of what's really going on. What's really going on is whatever that phrase, else what shall they do that are baptized for the dead, has to communicate, it has to communicate this. It would be a waste of time if there was no resurrection. If there was no resurrection, that would just be foolish. So we had the beautiful, actual, physical illustration performed before us this morning. A lot of believers surrender to the Lord in believers' baptism, and we saw that beautiful picture take place. Listen again. I'm going to read it one more time. Else what shall the Christians do who are baptized in water as a testimony for the unsaved? That's what Christians do who get baptized, by the way. It's as a test. You identify yourself with Christ, and you declare to the others hey guys, this is all about my new life in Christ. Christ died, was buried, and rose again. That's the gospel. It's literally they're preaching their first sermon. If those who have died don't actually rise, if they don't actually rise, what a waste of time, right? Why would they do that as a testimony of something that's not true, is what he's basically saying. And since biblical baptism is a picture of the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, as we see in many places in the Scripture, for example, Romans 6, 4, buried with him by baptism into death, like as Christ raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Colossians 2, 12, buried with him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. But the water baptism portion is just a picture of that. So Peter clarifies in 1 Peter 3.21, the like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. And just to make sure that you don't get confused, 
that water baptism washes away your sins, he says in parentheses, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection, oh, there it is, of Jesus Christ. So this idea of water baptism, listen, that is just a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It does save you because it pictures what is actually a spiritual baptism that immerses you into the body of Christ. That's another one of the baptisms. But the water, right, is just a figure. It's just a picture. That's all it is. So since that is what baptism pictures, and since water baptism does represent your identification with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, in other words, you've been saved, and your witness to a lost world that needs to understand the gospel. What kind of a picture would it be if there were no resurrection? It would, it would be no picture. It would be the wrong picture. It would, be, it would be foolish. And that is the point. If the dead rise not, then this whole baptism thing is kind of foolish, isn't it? it the, the picture would be to put them under. I'm going to leave them under. <laughs> Now, that description that I just gave you, by the way, that description, it's consistent with the text, it's consistent with the context, and it's consistent with all of the revelation of Scripture without having to change, add, or subtract one word in order to make the interpretation fit. Anything else you come across, and might I add 90 plus percent of the things you might read in commentaries, are going to sound like they're resting the Scripture a little bit. Now, some of you are well-experienced Bible students, and I did something a little bit earlier that you might have noticed. I did something that might have made you a little nervous, and just because I know that some of you are thinking that, I'm going to go ahead and tell you about it. Lest anyone think it's strange that when Jeff kind of wasn't, we weren't looking, he made a quick switch and said the dead were once spiritually and once physically and it's the same verse of Scripture. And how do, you, how do you do the switcheroo right in the middle where it's one spiritual and one physical? I mean, that does kind of seem a little fishy. Let me offer to you then the words of our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 8 and verses 21 and 22. Another of his disciples said unto him, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. Jesus said unto him, follow me and let the dead bury their dead. Now, I challenge you to make that fit any other way except let the spiritually dead, unsaved people take care of all that burying of physically dead people. You come follow me. Let the lost people take care of that stuff. That's what Jesus is saying. You can't put your hand to the plow and look back and be any good for the kingdom. And I think that if the Lord can do that, well, we can do it too. <laughs> it gives biblical precedent for the fact that it, although it's not the norm, it is a technique that has been used. And in a sense, it's almost using a play on words so that you can fully get the message. I get it. The wording of the verse is a little obscure. But I don't think the meaning needs to be obscure at all. And I certainly don't think we need to be inventing crazy doctrines to try and make one unusual verse try and fit. Let me just give you this. Why is that verse here in 1 Corinthians Chapter 15, what do you think? What are we supposed to learn from it? Well, I think it's that the impact of the resurrection is that we end up being unashamed. I think that's what it's all about. That's what baptism is for, is it not? 
Baptism is to prove that we're not ashamed. What is it about people that say they've received Jesus Christ as their Lord, but they will never stand out publicly and allow themselves to be baptized and declare openly, I am his. I am his. Well, there's some element of shame associated with it. I mean, baptism doesn't save you, but a person who refuses to get baptized, well, I mean, I mean, what kind of faith do they really have? They're not even willing to do something as easy as that. It's unashamed. That's death revealed. You're revealing to the world, I've died with him. Letter B, death risked, verse number 30. And why stand we in jeopardy every hour? You see, Paul lived his life in ministry with constant threats of opposition. You'll notice in your notes I've got tons of verses listed. I'm going to read through them very quickly. Let's just look at the Apostle Paul's resume of his ministry activity through the book of Acts. He got saved in Acts chapter 9, right? So let's start right away. Acts 9, 24. But their lying await was known of Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. And the disciples took him by night, let him down by the wall in a basket. 1350, but the Jews stirred up the devout and honorable women and chief men of the city and raised persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them out of their coasts. 14.2, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and made their minds evil affected against the brethren. Verses 5 through 7, and when there was an assault made, both of the Gentiles and also of the Jews with their rulers, to use them despitefully, and to stone them, they were aware of it, and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of uh, Lycaonia, and to the regions that lieth round about. And there they preached the gospel. Further down in the chapter, verse 19, And there came thither certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium who persuaded the people, and having stoned Paul, they actually did it, drew him out of the city, supposing he had been dead. 16.22, And the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates ran off their clothes and commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely. 17.5, But the Jews, which believed not, moved with envy, took upon them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, not the kind of guys you want to have as neighbors, and gathered a company and set all the city on an uproar and assaulted the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. Verse 32, And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, there it is, some mocked. And others said, we'll hear thee again of this matter. Acts twenty two twenty two. And they gave him audience unto this word. And then lifted up their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for it is not fit that he should live. Acts 23, 2. And the high priest Ananias commanded them that stood by him to smite him on the mouth. Verse 20. And he said, The Jews have agreed to desire thee, that thou wouldest bring down Paul tomorrow to the council, as though they would inquire somewhat of him more perfectly. But do not thou yield unto them, for there lie in wait for him of them more than forty men, which have bound themselves with an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now are they ready, looking for a promise from thee. Why all this opposition? Why, Paul? Why all this opposition? Why stand we in jeopardy every hour? Acts 24, 20. Or else let these same here say, if they have found any evil doing in me while I stood before the council, except it be for this one voice that I cried standing among them, touching the resurrection of the dead, I am called in question to you this day. That's why the Apostle Paul's life was in jeopardy, because of the truth of the resurrection. And oh, by the way, even the lost people knew that. 
Even the lost people knew that the resurrection was real. They weren't persecuting because he was inaccurately recording history. They were persecuting him because they knew he was right and they didn't want him to take away their followers. That's the problem. So as a result, Paul tells the believers in Philippi, in Philippians 1.28, in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. Having the same conflict. Hear that? We just read about his conflict. The same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Why stand we in jeopardy every hour if there is no resurrection? What kind of strange masochist would we be? If there's nothing after this life, why would we live our lives in peril? Why would we make ourselves fools for Christ? Why would we endure the mocking and the threatening? Why would we put ourselves in harm's way for a lie, for a myth? No, no, no. For the reality of the resurrection. That's the only reason. You see, the impact of the resurrection on your life ought to be boldness. That's what it ought to be. Regardless of what this world thinks they can do to me, it doesn't really matter. They cannot silence me because the worst thing that can happen to me is they send me home to my Lord early. That's the worst thing that can happen to me, and that's not so bad. That's not so bad. So death is revealed. Death is risked. Letter C, death is relinquished. Verse 31, I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily. I die daily. That's a practical death. That's, that's Paul's state. But Paul has a standing. There's a positional death in Christ that cannot be repeated daily. This is something that happened the moment you gave your heart and life to Jesus Christ. We see in Colossians 3, 3, for ye are dead. Well, that's positional. That's what happened when you received Christ as your Savior. Ye are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. That happened at salvation. That's done. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Now, verse 5, practically speaking, mortify therefore, put to death therefore, I die daily, practically, mortify therefore your members, which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, covetousness, which is idolatry. You see, because of the fact of the position of our death and crucifixion with Christ, we need to decide every day like Paul did, well, I'm going to die today too. I'm going to die to myself, and that's what that's really all about. He says in Romans chapter 6 and verse 11, Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin. You see, I am positionally already dead, but I need to reckon myself to be dead because, well, I can behave like I'm not. I can let my old flesh and my old sin nature crawl up and take charge and, well, I'm acting like I'm awful alive now and that's not a pretty thing. You see, this is your death to yourself, which means the death to your personal preferences, your personal selfish desires and plans. It's what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 16, 24. Then said Jesus unto whom his disciples, these are believers, right? If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. That's what he's talking about. Oh, and take up his cross. Oh, yeah, the cross is the instrument of death. Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. 
Paul describes it this way, 2 Corinthians 5, 14, For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. That's positional. That's, that's who we are in Christ. He died for us. We receive it. We're dead with him. Verse 15, And that he died for all for a reason, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. That's Paul saying, I die daily. Every single day I wake up and I decide, I'm not living for me today. I'm not living for me today. Your main enemy is yourself. For most all of us, your main enemy is yourself. And if you can just get past fighting yourself, your fleshly desires, you're free. You're free to serve the Lord without boundary. You're free to go and to do things. That's why Paul could live the life that he lived. And after he experienced ultimately, I think, actual physical death with that stoning, some disagree, they would be wrong, came back to life a little disappointed after he saw the other side. And thought to himself, well, you know what? If I got to live here, I'm going for it, y'all. And the worst they can do is send me where I want to go. So he could say things like, for me, to live is Christ. And to die, well, that's gain. <laughs> that's gain, right? Listen, if you can just get past your stinking self, man, it's a beautiful thing. And the Lord says so in Psalm 116, 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. It's a precious thing. You see, it's because the impact of the resurrection is selflessness. It's selflessness. He says the beginning of that verse I didn't deal with. It's actually fairly simple. I protest by your rejoicing which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. Means the fact that I can rejoice over you all makes dying to myself worth it. I'm happy to die every single day if I can rejoice with the fact that you guys are here doing what you're doing. Letter D, death rewarded. Verse number 32, If after the manner of men I fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantageth it me? If the dead rise not, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Okay, once again, the beasts at Ephesus. Now in this case, the beasts, it's, it's figurative. It's not literal. We know that it's figurative because he starts out by saying, you know, typically we take the Bible literally completely every single time until we absolutely can't. We know the beasts aren't like wild animals. We know that they're men because he starts out by saying, if after the men, after the manner of men. If after the manner of men, I fought with, oh, okay, well, you're talking about men. I get it. And that's not uncommon because throughout the scriptures we find that unbelieving opposers of the gospel are compared like unto beastly animals. Philippians 3, 2, beware of dogs. Okay, he's not talking about pit bulls. He's not. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the concision. He's talking about enemies of the gospel. Peter in Acts chapter 10, remember that story? He's on the rooftop and the sheet comes down with the unclean meats, right? All that sort of thing. All those, all those beasts, the meat of their bodies was, and he said, God told him, he said, well, you know, Call nothing that, you know, unclean that I've called clean. And then he ultimately had to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. In other words, the unclean beasts 
flesh was compared in picture to understand he's talking about the unsaved Gentiles. That's what he's talking about. Uh, Peter in 2 Peter chapter 2 is talking about false teachers where he says, but these as natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed speak evil of the things they understand not and shall utterly perish in their own corruption. When Paul is on his road back on his missionary journey and he stops at Ephesus and meets with the the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, he talks about, you better beware, grievous wolves are going to come in among you, not sparing the flock. And the very next verse says, he calls them men who will even draw away disciples after themselves. So it's figurative. So if after the manner of men, I've fought with opposers to the gospel at Ephesus, for example, what advantageth it me? In other words, what do I profit by fighting off all these guys if the dead rise not? I mean, why am I doing this anyway? Which is not an uncommon thought. People want to know what advantage is there in willingly surrendering privilege that's afforded us. In the book of Malachi, they took it too far. Chapter 3 and verse 14, God is talking to the Israelites, and he says, You have said, It is vain to serve God, and what profit is it that we've kept his ordinance and we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? They were, they were in their hearts at least, saying, Man, I don't know if this thing's worth it. And so... He says, and now we call the proud happy, and yea, that work wickedness are set up, yea, that tempt God are even delivered. In other words, the wicked people of life and society, they seem to be getting along just fine. And here I am trying to serve the Lord, and everything's going lousy. I don't know if it's worth it. I'm checking out. Well, sadly, this is an all-too-common mindset of the Laodicean church, right? But what we have here is, well, people thinking, well, if that's the case, I might as well just live for myself for today, right? Eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Look, we're all going to die soon enough anyway. Why would I waste my short life fighting opposition to the gospel if there is no resurrection? What does it profit me? Well, if that were true, it profits you nothing. Good thinking. The problem is there is a resurrection, right? Jesus addressed it. Luke 12, 19. I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. See, that's the mindset of the world. Hey, I'm going I'm to build barns and fill the barns and build bigger barns and fill the bigger barns and take my ease and just enjoy life and retire early and play golf every day or whatever it is and The Lord's like, well, good job. You worked really, really hard. You're going to die today. Sorry. What are you living for anyway? What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Right? But if there is a resurrection, if there is a resurrection, which indeed there is, then, then I'm fighting for truth. Then I'm fighting for the gospel. Then I'm fighting for souls. Oh, you know what? I'm even fighting for rewards. What profiteth me? How about gold, silver, precious stones, crowns, robes, positions of ruling in the kingdom? It'll profit you that. How about that? And this fleeting short life that you have for your three score and ten, if by reason of strength four score, you know, live it up. But eternity lasts a lot longer. It's just good planning to plan for that life. It's just good planning. See, the impact of the resurrection in this case is patience. 
It's patience. It's deferred reward. You don't need your reward today. You can put it off. It's a, it's a good investment. You're saving it for later. That's what you're doing. Let's look at the communication. Let's look at the last two verses. The communication impact of the resurrection on your life. That's the gospel, of course. And in these last two verses, Paul emphasizes the need to get the word out. But just as there's a cost to pay personally, well, there's other hindrances to the gospel. And the first one we see is letter A, the corruption. The corruption comes in verse number 33 where it says, Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. So the word here, communications, is a unique word in the scriptures because it comes from a root in the Greek language that it's only used this one and only time in all the Bible. There is no other cross-reference to this word. And so we just define it with a dictionary, right? The, the word communications here literally means not oral communication speaking, for example. It literally means companionship. It means association. So evil communications literally defined is ungodly associations. Ungodly associations. The word corrupt, I think everybody understands. It, interestingly, in 1 Corinthians 3.17 is also translated, if any man defile, it's defined, it's defined as defile or destroy. Both appear in this verse. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. That's the same word as corrupt. If any man shall corrupt the temple of God, him shall God corrupt. So evil communications, ungodly associations will destroy good manners. Now, you know, we're not talking about which fork to use for the salad. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about bowing and curtsying, although that might be fun. No, a, a man, manners are habitual practices. Comparing Scripture with Scripture, Acts 17, 2, And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures. Therefore, good manners in context is preaching the gospel. And we know it's preaching the gospel because that's the context of the next verse that follows. Right? So, what Paul is saying is this. Evil, be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. In other words, don't kid yourself. The thing that can destroy your ability to preach the gospel is having the wrong friends. It's having the wrong friends. We have an expression in the Albanian language. I know I've quoted this before for you. And it sounds cooler in Albanian, and because my father-in-law occasionally listens to these, I'll say it. Literally, that kind of rhymes in Albanian. What it means is, tell me who you hang around with and I'll tell you what kind of person you are. In other words, a man is known by his associations. A man is known by his associations. Well, that's exactly what Paul's trying to say here. So David, in Psalm 119.63 says, I'm a companion of all them that fear thee, and of them that keep thy precepts. You want a good guide for friend choosing? That's a good one. Solomon said in Proverbs 22:24, "Make no friendship with an angry man, and with a furious man thou shalt not go." Psalm 101:4 through7, "A froward heart shall depart from me. I will not know a wicked person. 
Whoso privily slandereth his neighbor, him will I cut off. Him that hath an high look and a proud heart, will I not suffer. Mine eyes shall not be upon, mine eyes shall be, excuse me, upon the faithful of the land, that they may dwell with me. He that walketh in a perfect way, he shall serve me. He that worketh deceit shall not dwell within my house. He that telleth lies shall not tarry in my sight. Listen, y'all, if you can just make better choices of who you hang around with, it'll have an amazing impact on your life. If you want to learn to be a soul winner, well, go hang around with soul winners. If you want to learn the Bible, hang around with people who know the Bible. Right? If you want to learn to be a person of prayer, hang around with people who pray. And if you want to be a backslider, you hang around with backsliders. Because that's what's going to happen. That's the way it works. Now, after you got saved, quite likely, you've already stopped hanging around with your old friends from your lost life. That's fairly natural. It happens fairly regularly, right? But now, as you grow in Christ, do you have carnal saved friends that corrupt your effectiveness in ministry? You see, the impact of the resurrection Well, it's determination. It's singular focus. I am determined that I will allow nothing to hinder my ability. We frequently address the young adults here, and we say, hey, look, I know peer pressure is a big deal, and at your age you're looking for acceptance, and you want to fit in, and all that's fine, but most of the fitting goes on among people who hate the Lord. So you have to be really careful about that. And if you will be singularly focused, if you will be determined that you will follow the Lord, well, there's going to be a time when you're just going to have to say, I will not be a companion of such people. I'm going to make my friends friends of the gospel. That's who I'm going to make my friends. Philippians 4, 3, 14, Philippians chapter 3, excuse me, verse 14, Paul says, I press toward the mark. That's the idea. I'm, I'm pressing toward this mark for the prize of the high calling of God. In Christ Jesus. So let's take a minute and look at this high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let her be the call. Awake to righteousness and sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. The call of God on your life is a wake-up call. It's a wake-up call to communicate the gospel to others. Hey, listen, y'all, don't forget why we're here. Don't forget why, after you have been saved, you weren't immediately translated into the kingdom of his dear son. Remember why he left you here. He did not leave you here just to enjoy yourself, although you can enjoy yourself. He did not leave you here to gather as much of the world around you as you possibly can and insulate yourself with levels and levels of savings and insurances and all the things that protect you from any harm getting to you. And those things aren't evil in of themselves. That's not your purpose. Your purpose is to be a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why you're here. It's not to fight on social media about politics. It's not any of those things. You have one call. You have one purpose. And it's a high calling. It's been given to you. 2 Corinthians 5.18 And all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. And hath given to us what? The ministry of reconciliation, reconciling a sinful world and a holy God. That's evangelism. That's what it is. And there's only two things that are going to keep you from fulfilling that call. And those two things are addressed in this verse. There's only two commands in this entire passage. Awake to righteousness. 
It's like in Romans 13, 11, where Paul says, And that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. Hey, listen, y'all, enough sleeping. It's a wake-up call. It's time to wake up. Why? Because people are dying and going to hell. Some have not the knowledge of God. And I speak this to your shame. I speak this to your shame. That's what he says. Ephesians 5, 14, Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. The church in Corinth, like in Laodicea, has fallen asleep on the job. And that's a problem. We're called to be soldiers. And a soldier on guard duty cannot sleep or else people perish. And a soldier on guard duty that falls asleep and by extension causes the death of his fellow soldiers, well, can be punishable by death. 1 Thessalonians 5, 6, Therefore let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and of love, and for an helmet the hope of salvation. Awake to righteousness and sin not. Sin not, because sin blocks the Spirit's power in your life. 1 John 3, 4, sin is the transgression of the law. So you break the law, well, that's sin. Psalm 119, 11, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. So obey the law, well, that's righteousness. Well, the context is preaching the gospel. The context is other people getting saved. But because the church is asleep and because the church is full of sin, well, some have not the knowledge of God. And when he says have not the knowledge of God, literally he means, well, they're not saved. They're not saved. And he says, I speak this to your shame. He speaks it to our shame because it's our responsibility that they get that knowledge. Now, it's their responsibility to do something with that knowledge. It's their responsibility to decide whether they're going to receive the free gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. But if they don't even know to do that, well, well, that's our fault, right? To our shame. Shame on us. In the Bible, the opposite of being ashamed is to be approved. We see that in 2 Timothy 2.15. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. Because shame is disapproval. It's disapproval. And so once again, we're coming back to the focus of the word of God. Psalm 119.80. Let my heart be sound in thy statutes that I not be ashamed. 1 John 2.28. And now little children abide in him that when he shall appear we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Study God's word. Hide it in your heart. Live a holy life. And let that provide for you this last impact of the resurrection, which is motivation. Motivation for ministry. Let the truth of the resurrection motivate you to get up out of bed every morning and get into God's word every morning and go out into the world every morning ready to tell others about it. That's what he's calling us to do. There's a common thread the resurrection is true and worth paying whatever the cost to get that message out to a world that needs it. 
It has a real impact on our lives practically today. And lastly, the truth of the resurrection impacts us so that we can impact the world with the gospel. That's what it's all about. Because 1 Corinthians 15 is not just an apologetic for an historical fact. It's also evidence that demands a response from all of us. And so that means it demands a response from you. If you're here and you don't know the Lord is your Savior, the response that you need to give is to surrender your heart and receive His free gift of eternal life. And if you're here and you know you have received Him as your Savior, but yet you find the Spirit tapping on your shoulder and saying, Hey, wake up. Stop sinning. Get busy. Do what's right. Be willing to suffer. Be singularly focused. Die to yourself. Oh, listen, there's a whole list of things we can apply, friends. Let's do that. Let's do business with the Lord. Let's